Welcome to the Hawkeye Psychic Podcast. And you're very welcome back to the Hawkeye Psychic Podcast with your host, Mark Kennedy. And I have my resident rugby pundit, analyst extraordinaire, Nemo Breen with me uh, to run the rule over the Guinness Six Nations uh, round three uh, fixtures that happened over the weekend. I suppose the banner headlines here being Ireland beating Italy 57-6, rather farcical circumstances. We'll go through that in quite detail in a few minutes. France probably the stand-up performance, routing Scotland in Murrayfield, 17-36 to scoreline there for the French, while England stuttered to a 22-19 win over Wales. Liam, how are things? Uh, great, great, Mark. I, I actually enjoyed the weekend's uh, Six Nations games very much. Uh, you know, we, we got the win and we we had Wales almost catch England and France give an absolutely stunning performance against the Scots as well. Ireland v Italy uh, in the Aviva Stadium, very competitive first 10 minutes and then things descended into anarchy thereafter. What were your kind of initial thoughts? What weren't Italy actually quite competitive in that like 18 minutes to be exact like, you know? I thought there was there was nothing in it, like you know. Um, obviously we started well with uh, Joey's try. Uh, that that was a well taken try by Joey. But yeah, Italy even throughout the game were quite competitive. I uh, have to say, you know, defensively they kind of almost had our measure. You know, we didn't really really ask a huge amount of questions against them. And I suppose in terms of on the 18 minutes that 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 red card was like a definite. You know, uh, it, it had to it had to be given. But then, absolutely, oh, pure farcical scenes afterwards when the Italian captain was saying that you know, um, well, we can you know bring on another forward, you know, and you know that's 40, and 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 the, the referee saying no, no, you can't do that, uh, you can't bring anyone else on, and it's 13 for the rest of the game, so <laughs> crazy stuff. Yeah, completely agree with you, Liam. I thought Italy started the game fantastically well. Now, granted, Carberry gets the opening try. I think there is poor defensive reads on the Italian defensive side. You know, great line break again from Doris. Dan Sheen, I thought, very impressive in hooker, setting up Carberry. But apart from that, the collisions, I thought, were being won by Italy. And as well as that, I thought the breakdown worked from Italy, particularly in that, well, throughout the game, I thought, when they picked their moments, they really did isolate and expose Ireland's ball carriers. I mean, Henshaw once or twice was... Caught absolutely rotten, uh, you know, on the deck. And uh, to, in fairness to Italy, I thought they were well competitive, well in it. Lucchese, the starting hooker, he goes off very early with the shoulder injury. Then you have Fava to come in. And I don't think there's any argument, is there, name in terms of that red card? Like, it's a it's a late hit. You know, you've seen Bundyaki getting done for similar discretions. I think the referee, the Georgian referee, has absolutely no choice no matter i thought he adjudicated very well with carly and also to tmo to really look at mitigation there was none red card and then the uncontested scrum rule where rugby is now in the focus in the spotlight i mean it was there for a reason but now given the circumstances here it made a quite a competitive opening period farcical um for the rest of the game really and i think it did stun ireland quite a bit didn't it Liam? i mean there was an awful lot of over elaboration. There was an awful lot of missed, missed passes, a few offsides you wouldn't typically see from Ireland. 
just seemed to really stun the crowd and stun the Ireland performance as a result in that first half. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose like you're paying 30 men and I don't know, they didn't think they were going to walk through them or something. But yeah, the, the performance totally dipped after that. It was as if um, they had too much ball. And that can actually be a problem as well, you know, almost like a training session. Now, to be fair, like directly afterwards, we had like a Jemison Gibson Park um, and it, it was like try and it was 14-3. And to be honest, you know, 14-3 plus 13 players playing against... Game was pretty much nearly all over at that stage, really, to see them coming back. And at least, you know, we did get two good tries before half time. And Lowry, third try, it was very high, Ken. I have to say, it's very, very Shane William esque, you know, <laughs> the way he escaped the, uh, there. Um, so that was, that was nice. It was nice to see. I thought Lowry, for what he did during the game, you know, he did well. And can't really complain about that. And then we had, you know, we had another try then, uh, near just near half time, to bring us to twenty four three, and then the Italian penalty. So you know, we were we were happy enough in terms of we got the bonus points for the first half. I think Lowry's debut was again. Can you read a whole pile into it? I think for the fringe guys that were in, I'd say they were almost very disappointed in terms of how this game evolved. I mean, playing against thirteen players, very hard to assess performances, but. I think for the guys that did come in, they played solid. Um, Lowry's pace, speed with ball in hand was there for all to see. Particularly in these, in these two tries, really good. Um, I think Ryan Baird as well, I think, got through an awful lot of good work there for Ireland. 13 tackles, the try in the second half was, uh, you know, really just reward for Baird. Hume had some great cameos. Yeah, I mean... It, again, against 13 players, though. But I think you have to credit Italy as well. I think the 13 players were very brave in terms of defensive line speed. They continued to kind of try to shut Ireland down. We're winning the fair share in the breakdown battle as well. But I suppose, Liam, if we're going to pick negatives out of this performance, I think the stark reality of Johnny Sexton and when he leaves, I think, could be qu- quite key. I don't know about you, but I just didn't feel that Carby got to the pitch of the game at all whatsoever uh, on Sunday. What were your thoughts? Yeah, uh, it was a kind of a stark contrast, I suppose. It's very simple to see between Carberry and then when, when Johnny came on and immediately the the, the, the attack lit up. I suppose Carberry, he offered nothing attacking-wise in terms of so stationary in, in receiving the ball and then the pod with him goes with him. So there was no real, you know, no real runners. Um, and then when Johnny came on, you know, the, the, the good old loop happens again and... It's amazing how we actually can create a good attacking platform. And, you know, granted at that stage, we have to also remember that the Italians eventually went down for last five, six minutes. They went down to 12 as well, you know. But, um, yeah, look, Johnny Johnny is a absolutely oozes class, absolutely oozes class. And he can command the back line around him. And I suppose that's the, the important thing for, for an out-half to be able to do as well. He's able to actually basically tell them, what to do? Yeah, I think it's the orchestration and the leadership that he possesses, Liam. You know, everyone on this pitch, instant respect. You know, he orchestrates. He's almost like your quintessential quarterback in American football. He is calling the shots. You could see with Casey. Casey's looking every single time. Where is Sexton? And in fairness to Casey, when he came on as well. Now, you'd have to probably credit the fact that Italy, with 13 players, are gradually tiring the exhaustion levels here in terms of the tackle count repeatedly getting up, repeatedly looking to get the line speed. 
there was an effect there, but it doesn't take away from the fact that Ireland got a little bit more direct when Sexton was involved. I think we saw far more of the likes of James Lowe, Mac Hansen, and Lowry as well, into proceedings as well, where I think for the 50, 53 minutes that maybe Carberry and Gibson Park were on, it was all very lateral. It was all very static. I, thought, I felt sorry for 12 and 13, particularly particularly Henshaw. Really didn't have any real go forward ball, which is hard to say. Say that given Italy being down to 13 players for such a long period. We just didn't seem to have any distinct tacking plan. Gibson Park's passing at times, I thought, was pretty poor as well. But I think Sexton's class really shone in, in that last quarter particularly. And uh, yeah, I mean points did follow fairly quickly and we did leave a few scores behind particularly in the last quarter yeah and it was great to see Karen Treadwell kind of come on as well uh, uh, Liam a guy that has been a consistent performer at Ulster Rugby in the last few seasons gets his reward and gets a nice try to kind of finish things off as well um, I thought he had a good game what did you think yeah well, he's, he's a cracking game yeah and uh, he's a big lad he's a big lad isn't he and, you know, he, he's been tearing trees for, for uh, Ulster all season as well. You know, he's been probably their most consistent forward, you could argue, you know. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're well stocked there with, you know, as you said, with, with Ryan Baird uh, and Treadwell and Henderson and the other guys. Yeah, absolutely. Delighted to, to see to see him get that try there. I think the emergence of Dan Sheen as well in Hooker, I know this is the context, the circumstances around Italy and the Turkey players. I don't think, though, you could discount this performance of Dan Sheehan. I thought his mobility, his open play, his linking of play was superb line-out time, d- deadly accurate. Very good debut from Dan Sheehan, you know, and really kind of sets the marker down for Ronan Kelleher. And also for Rob Herring, that he's there for the long haul and looking to extend that stay in the Irish hooker jersey. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he just reminds me, I, 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 Malcolm Marks, basically, you yeah. know. He ha- and he has that ability. Obviously, Malcolm Marx is like <laughs> a kind of a turnover extraordinaire as well. So that will that will come. But yeah, no, that's exactly who he reminds me of. And, you know, you could have argued beforehand that, you know, Rob Herring was number two hooker and that he should start. And then she and come on for, you know, bench impact, obviously. But to be honest with it, I, I, it now looks like the other way around. Absolutely. You start with that guy. You start you start with the, that mobile guy. And then you bring on for the last 10, 15 minutes, you can bring on Herring um, for, for line-up malls and all that. Yeah. I think it's a nice little conundrum that Andy Farrell and his management staff have now. If Kelleher is fully fit, you know, Rob Herring, I think we know all about. Even Dave Hefner from Connacht Rugby as well. There seems to be now suddenly a bit of a depth chart battle going on in Hooker, which is great, heading into 2023 in the World Cup. You know, we do have the Summer Series in New Zealand, that will sort men out from the boys, certainly, and also uh, November Internationals. But it's great to see that level of competition. It's great to see these boys pushing each other on week in, week out, and can only bode well uh, far and going forward. And I suppose it'd be remiss of us not to mention the back row performance as well, Liam. I thought, again, Italy may have had their breakdown you know, turnover ball successes, but to a man, I thought, a man, he's captaincy, superb, gets his try. Doris and Van der Fleer just were awesome, I thought, in open play. Uh, what did you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I concur with all, with all that. And yeah, Van der Fleer, wow. I mean, for, for a small guy, he really can carry these ties, you know. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm blown away by that. Uh, his form is tremendous. 
And yeah, it's such a difference to have, you know, I mean, if if you don't have Sexton there, absolutely, O'Mahony is pretty much the next guy I'd be thinking about, you know, in terms of his leadership. And Doris gets through so much work, like he, he's, and he, he runs great lines. Oh, <laughs> I've noticed that in, in, in all the Six Nations games so far, that's been, his great lines have, have led to quite a lot of tries for Ireland, actually. I counted within the first three minutes here, Lane, or five minutes, you had three distinct keen line breaks. I mean, that really kind of set the tone. According to ESPN stats here, he carried for 95 metres, Van der Fleer for 44. I mean, and Van der Fleer's metres were very hard-running lines. It was really engaging tackles, stuff like that, and bouncing off them. And I thought it was um, I thought it was a great performance off those guys. And, you know, looking at Jack Conan coming in, uh, did impress as well. It's nice little arguments or debates for Andy Farrell and the backroom staff to really kind of now consider heading into England and tweaking them in a few weeks time which is great what for Italy Liam um, any positives you could take out of that from their perspective I know the opening period was pretty decent anything else kind of really stand out for you on that Italian performance even even though it finished 57 you know six it was quite a solid defensive display you know it has to be said for, for Italy you know and <clears throat> In terms of uh, the breakdown, whenever Ireland, and particularly obviously it was we're talking about the second half essentially, got momentum, the ball was turned over. Italy were able to turn us over. So again, that's something that they should be um, quite pleased with, I have to say. I thought Lamaro as a captain, under very trying circumstances, he did, you know, from minute one, he led the line superbly well, 18 tackles, carried, I think, for 40, 40 metres. Um, Reed did lead the line very well. Um, now again, the old failings, the the brain fart defensive moments did come in rear its head. I mean, for um the Gibson Park try, for instance, the second try, Padovano, the Italian fullback, he has to stop James Law at source. I mean, there's no excuse. We've seen this season in, season out, where it's one on one, there has to be a tackle made and it's not, and then all of a sudden, twenty seconds later, there's a try. Um, and again, Ioni as well was never seen with ball in hand. But for one of the tries, brain fart moment, kicks the ball into his own dead zone and then literally concedes a five metre. And I'm kind of like, your pack is working so hard <laughs> and your back three literally are giving up scores like that. It was kind of, yeah, for me, it wasn't great. I mean, they've superb talent in likes of Garbezi. You can see the class oozes from him, you know, the marrow. Hopefully he's under 20s that come in. I know they shipped up a heavy loss against Ireland in the under 20s. Now they did win against England the previous round. Hopefully a few of them emerge and come into that setup because it's required. I think we've kind of seen now in terms of prop situation, hooker situation there as well. Reinforcements are required. But as I said, Liam, long periods, they definitely did uh, you know, compete well. I mean, game was well and truly gone, as you said, when they went down to 13 players. But manfully... They stuck at it. I mean, 57-6, I think, was maybe a touch harsh on the Italians, just given going into the 16 minutes, you know, we were still kind of in that 30 kind of point bracket for Ireland. We uh, weren't kind of pulling trees up in terms of an attacking performance. So I suppose for Kieran Crowley and his management staff, you know, what can you say? I mean, the players have really, to a man, worked very hard. But again, it's still a heavy loss, a 51-point loss when it's all said and done. So I wonder what the morale will be like going into that Scottish game uh, in a few weeks. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I'd give them some sort of a chance, to be honest with you. I really would like, you know. 
because typical Scottish kind of brain fart moments are, are always liable in any game. So, but in terms in terms of Italian rugby going forward, I think you know at the height when they were beating all the top teams, they had guys the the top English and uh, the French sides. So these young lads they have currently, they're basically going to have to get them away from Zebra and, and from Benetton to some to some other sides in Europe. That's the only way kind of short-term that they can actually progress as a nation, I think. Yeah, I think you've seen it with Garbezi as well, performance levels. I think I've, I've, I've seen increase anyway since he's been with Montpellier, even for these last few months. There is a distinct improvement there. You know, I think one of the props is playing in Breve. As you say yourself, Benetton Rugby, the Rainbow Cup, one-off competition, it did show potential, but I think poor old Zebri is maybe a development ground club. Um, yeah, it's true for you. I mean, you know, just for these players to experience successfully run, you know, team clubs on and off the pitch, just to learn to be training with the best of the best. I think that's the only way that they're going to emerge. But then, yeah, probably the thorny issues of club commitments versus country commitments and getting the side to national camps and all that sort of stuff. So, but Again, it is kind of lending itself to that proposal, Darlene. Um, they definitely need a little bit more exposure outside of Italy, Italian club scene to really build that experience, build that performance levels up. Because right now, you know, these rumours of South Africa, I know they've been squashed at the moment, but I think could essentially it could come back on the table fairly quickly if we're getting 51-point hammerings like this. I think the, the discussion is never far away. So hopefully Italy can produce performance. And maybe we lend itself to the Scottish game in Murrayfield, 1736. Uh, there was a large French contingent in Murrayfield. And that's always a sign for me when the French squad, squad, the supporters, if there's a large support base for France in these games, you know that this team are really, really on the money. And to be fair to France... Given all the Scottish injuries, they really made hay in Murrayfield on Saturday afternoon. What were your thoughts, uh, Liam? Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was a really impressive performance from France, I have to say. You know, and in early years, you know, it could be a bit of a banana skin for them, but um, they they are really motoring at this stage. I mean, the, that Dupont moment uh, for a, yeah. for creating the first try that was that was just absolute magic, you know, and it really showed why he is probably arguably the best player in the world at the moment. Of course, you know, the you know, missed tackle from Darcy Graham led, led directly to that as well, I, I guess, but um, which should have been made. But um, well-worked well tries, the, fir- the f- first few tr- French tries were very well-worked. But even the ball carrier had so many options. I mean, even for that first try for Williamson, the amount of players that were actually looking for the ball, there was like three or four forwards looking for the ball like I mean so from a Scottish defensive perspective if you're on the fringes who am I who am I taking on here because any one of these guys were looking for the ball it was like the options that the French scrum half DuPont Intimac had I thought at times it was just exhilarating just to see players in complete control in terms of their attacking phase play Films a great try to kick it off DuPont's line break sensational but even Mofana for me I thought was one of the stories of the game. I mean, seven carries, 66 metres. But I don't think it told the whole story. I thought physicality-wise, he dominated. He's a uh, he's opposing number. He gets a brilliant try after 13 minutes. Really does set the tone. And to be perfectly fair to Scotland, they did respond. And Darge, great try. Good pass from Ali's, Ali Price. 
And then we probably have maybe one of the marquee moments of the, of the game. Um, Liam, the Stuart Hogg knock-on, when it looks like there should be a try here for Scotland on the board. Such a sweeping move. Just felt the seesaw change. It wrestled back to France thereafter. It was a swing. Yeah, it, it was a swing. You know, when, when France mm-hmm. go up and then, and then score. Yeah, it was a swing. He, he, he's very liable to these brain fart moments. I remember playing against us uh, um, in the Viva and uh, yeah, he like he scored essentially, carried the ball over the line and dropped it, you know. So, I mean, he absolutely, it's it's hard to explain how a player of his calibre can do that, you know. And it's it just, it kills any Scottish hopes really, you know. I mean, when they can't score, when, when it, it was easier to score they're not in that position. I think it's unforgivable at that level, you know, because chances are a rare, were a rarity for Scotland anyway to break gain line anyway against this dominant French performance. But they had the opportunity. Pass wasn't half uh, half bad. Um, it's just lack of concentration, lack of focus. And you have Hogg there, and then of course Finn Russell was completely nullified by France. Obviously, France saw the the game tapes. They know what to expect from Finn Russell. They completely nullified him. So. I think a turning point was definitely the hog knock on because it gave France an opportunity to rest initiative back. And sure enough, uh, my friend Dante and Fiku scored the tries, secured a bonus point uh, pretty quickly. And I think to be fair, Liam, it was one-way traffic after that. We talked last week, Liam, about how Scotland would respond to a crisis. Ireland had to respond to a crisis in Paris when they were 10-0 down. The same happened here for Scotland. And to be perfectly honest, the body language of the Scottish players, just, it was pretty poor. So I think France, seeing that, just literally went through the gears and throwing the ball around nicely, you know, more tries and more creativity ensued. What were your thoughts there in terms of the penalty tries, uh, particularly, uh, Liam? I mean, the two tries were, <laughs> you had the, the freedom of Edinburgh to run down the wing there for both tries. Yeah, but but but, but Pedro, Pedro likes that. He likes nearly always making his own tries, like, you know. Uh, he's 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 a he's a he's a real complete footballer, you know. He's a guy who you probably wouldn't say should be on the wing. You know, he could be anywhere else. He could be centre. He could be out half. But um, yeah, beautifully taken tries, I must say. Like the Scottish defensive line speed was gone at that stage. The shape, the cohesion was all gone. I mean, they were so passive. They were so kind of. You know, sucked into the play that you know Penno Penno has deceptively devastating speed uh, for such a big guy. And but I think the video analysis in that Scottish um, squad it'll make for horror reading because even in that second half, team uh, now you can counteract that by saying two of their trees back row were unavailable. I think Hamish Watson. We have to be quite brutally honest. What a linchpin in that pack and Johnny Gray as well. Two of those guys in Sutherland as well. Those three guys gone. Doesn't seem to be much of a depth chart there. And for me, it raises questions over to Gregor Townsend era. He's been there since 2017, Liam. Where's the progression on the Scottish side? I mean, he's been there enough to build a squad of 30, 40 guys. And a bit of an injury crisis. The performance was well below par. I'm just questioning Scotland going forward into a 2023 World Cup calendar year. Would, are they should they consider kind of looking at the head coaching position because it just to me it seems as if this supposed golden generation from Scotland is not delivering at the highest level. 
and he's had ample opportunity, ample years to impress. Yeah, well, I mean, he's he's been there. I mean, he was he was at the last uh, Rugby World Cup, which was probably the worst really in our history, pretty much. Like you know, in terms of the group stages. Yeah, I mean, clearly, I think they'd have to really look between now and the World Cup at appointing someone else. I mean, this is the kind of stage where you know, I had to allude to Rassi Rasmus was was uh, was was called upon, you know, and uh, transform things. And in, ter- in terms of Scotland, it has to be said that they have some flaky characters as well. Kind of a bit of a bind because, I mean, I particularly look at Hogg and, and Finn Russell. And, like, you know, you can't really drop them, no matter <laughs> uh, how poor their, their performances, their work rate sometimes even appears to be. So that's something else for Scotland. They don't have a huge pick. God, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I, I, I wonder because Scotland, can they actually call on Ben Healy, you know? Why, why contracted to Munster? Would, would they give that a go for for a summer tour as well? Because they need to, they need to certainly look at, at out half as well. Kinghorn certainly is not the answer at 10. Thought he had a nightmare. Now granted he had a line break right at the end. Set up Duhan van der Merv for a try. But he was flaky out. I mean, I thought Kinghorn was more fullback, but obviously can't get his game there with Hogg being the ever-present. Yeah, it just raises serious questions. I think depth chart-wise, you're kind of looking at it and it's been wholly exposed for Scotland uh, in this uh, campaign. A few injuries. Again, you can't take the absences of Johnny Gray and particularly Hamish Watson lightly. They're phenomenal players, world-class players. You take two world-class guys out of a pack, that's significant. But it's the whole squad, it's the whole ethos. Again, this was the team that beat England narrowly in the Calcutta Cup. How much of a momentum platform do you need in round one? Then they go into Wales where they literally sat back waiting for the game to come to them and they get done by Wales deservedly. And then this was just, yeah, I mean, France were in the mood, certainly, but obviously they saw the personnel and they saw within the initial exchanges that Scotland were losing collision battles all ends up and the, Fran- the French team don't need to be asked twice to express themselves, particularly in a rugby camp day in Murrayfield, which, but I think Scotland have massive questions. And as you say yourself, uh, Liam, they travel to Rome next round. To me, it looks a close game, to be perfectly honest. You know, Italy, hopefully, there's a more of a bounce back again, you know, after what's happened to them in Ireland. You know, Scotland, the confidence has to be pretty low there. So it'll be intriguing just to see how that game uh, pans out, really, to be fair. And then the last game was England against Wales uh, in Twickenham. And to be perfectly honest, I've written down in my notes... A very strange game. And why do I say that? Like for pretty much 48, 49 minutes of this game, England dominate possession, packed platform, Marcus Smith slotting over penalties. Wales really didn't get a sniff. But then on minute 53, well, actually, it'd be remiss of me not to say the Dubrandt try on the 43 uh, minutes. It looked as if England had secured a win and could go away. Credit to Wales. And when they got sufficient balls of possession, they really did pull serious threats here to Liam on the England try line. It would have been very interesting to see if there was another five minutes left. Could have Wales managed to have nicked the result? Yeah, yeah. It, it certainly looked like that. I mean, of course, you know, Wales have some, some quality players to bring on off the bench um, that certainly turned tight as well. And yeah, England, so much possession. It's like the game when you have almost too much possession and they're playing a different game from from, from the from previous seasons. 
uh, maybe Eddie Jones wants to kind of um, move away from a forward orientated game but like that was their strength and now they're kind of a bit clueless as to what kind of style that they're they're playing and then that of course means that you know they can't close out games and, and comfortably win the games as well and they let ways back into a big time. I think England, you know, up until the opposition 22, do all the right things. You know, their kick game is good. They will build phases. They will make gain line breaks. But it's when they get to that 22 metre line of the opposition, it's where the issues were seen against Scotland in round one. Again, against Italy, where they masked a little bit. I think the Italian performance, to be fair, was poor on the day. Wales were a more disciplined defensive line. And... Apart from Marcus Smith, who tried to make things happen creativity-wise, it was very much one-out runners uh, from England, really not really offloading, looking to basically bash their way through uh, the Welsh defensive line, which had mixed results, to be perfectly honest. Now, Ewell's had a great chance, uh, particularly in that opening period. If he goes over, then maybe confidence starts to soar on the side, but that was pulled back. No, it's just, they look very one-dimensional. I mean, think Jerry Fannery mentioned it but the focal point of attack being very kind of one-dimensional everything seems to be on marcus smith at the moment randall at scrum half was distributing fine but again there was no other focal point apart from marcus smith and you consider liam henry slade extra chiefs classic playmaker elliot daily 13 now wouldn't be my cup of tea from center you know center nation but these are talented footballers i mean these can orchestrate and playmake it's all down to Marcus Smith here at the moment, and that's a distinctive coaching decision for Eddie Jones, would you not think? Yeah, it is, because, I mean, I mean, I mean England are going to be, you know, I was easy to be, but they're going to be easy to figure out, and Marcus Smith has had a very good introduction to international rugby, you know, from that Springbok win in November right through until now. But I tell you, when it comes up to, to the, the last few games, you know, you can imagine against Ireland and against France, he is going to be suffocating, you know, in terms of he just won't be have any time on the ball. And if he is stopped, England are completely stopped. The whole flow of the English team have gone. Defensive line speed from both France under Sean Edwards, particularly Ireland's defensive line speed as well is incredible as well. There's going to be hits here on Marcus Smith. You know, he's going to know about it in terms of test match rugby after these two games. I think England's attacking focus will definitely have to switch. I mean, the dumb round to try after 43 minutes. And we've criticised the West Front 5, <laughs> lean quite openly on round one. Now, in fairness to them, round two and three, they've been superb in terms of scrum. Scrummaging has been first class. Genge and Sinclair had nightmares uh, against Wales, scrummaging-wise, uh, last weekend. But it's the line-out. The line-out has been hit and miss. And poor Elias and his line-out unit... I'd say video analysis must have been a bit of a nightmare for that Dubran to try. I mean, you know, they're fairly close to their own goal. Just be safe. Hit the first man, the line-out, exit. Again, I think it's an ambitious line-out throw for the, the hooker. I don't think his throwing has been up to much. And unfortunately, Dubran gets to try. But again, from a Welsh perspective, um, there was signs of that front five evolving a little bit. Again, but what were your thoughts, uh, Liam, overall in terms of the Welsh pack? I mean... They had to soak up pressure, no doubt. But yeah, look, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, to be honest, with you, they they look well, on paper. They look some of the weakest, really, you know, in in the competition. Obviously, we know they're missing 
legends like uh, Owens and uh, Alan Wynne Jones as well. But yeah, I think I think they they've they've stood up pretty well. Tane Basham looks a real quality, quality fight as well. Real. I, I don't think. Oh, I seem to unearth these jewels of like open sides. Like I don't know where they get them off some production line somewhere. But um, yeah, and uh, uh, scrummage wise, Wales basically are 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 holding more than holding their own at the moment. Wynne Jones, I thought had a very good game. I mean, he was very decisive on a. A defensive stand there for Wales, particularly in the opening period, you know, was instrumental in a, you know, turnover right on their line. Thought he was superb in terms of his scrummaging as well. I think the Welsh front row really did pose an awful lot of problems for the England front row. Sinclair was clearly uncomfortable from early doors, you know, and, you know, the engagement just wasn't right. And Genge then was being exposed as well. He was bringing down the scrum and getting pinged for it. So I think there's... I think there's an awful lot of positives here for Ireland to go after that English front row, given the performance of Wales. I thought Toby Falatel was absolutely fa- phenomenal for Wales as well. You coming back in after a lengthy absence, and I mean phenomenal figures like 19 tackles, 15 carries for 29 meters. Those 29 meters were very hard earned. I mean that England pack so abrasive, so physical, but it was great to see Falatel there. Cuthbert comes in, 17 carries, 146 meters, and I mean. That 146 metres probably coincided, you know, the bulk of them coincided in the last 30 minutes. When, as you say yourself, Liam, uh, the Welsh management threw uh, clear the bench. It's great to see Jonathan Davis back. But the guys that came on made a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. Davies had, you know, scrum half coming on as well. You know, they're they're real real quality players. And we as more than any other team, well, apart from France, as we said, they really can create... Great backline play. And uh, Josh Adams again, you know. Geez, I think it was actually been a while since Josh Adams scored a try, you know. And one stage there, he was like scoring, a, he was getting an average a try game. Uh, yeah, so I think that'd be delighted with the way it ended. And when you think about it, considering that England had a few, you know, penalties on the first half to get to 12 nil, I mean, th- there was there was nothing in it, literally, at the end. I mean, uh, Tompkins goes for the try, packed to the four. And again, maybe is this England fatigue kicking in after all the pressure, all the intensity, not really finishing the game off. Thought that was a superb try as well. Adams try now. Tomas Williams, it's a superb pass. Adams there, he exposed Stewart and the defensive line superbly well as well to lead that comeback. Hardy is, as you said as well. Maybe I mentioned in my blog during the week. Have the Welsh management as well missed a trick in terms of Reese Webb as well. In this Welsh squad, I thought, you know, a guy tailor-made for an English game. You know, he's a all-round game. I think maybe suited more than Tomas Williams. But again, Williams kind of showed his worth with the Adams try. But still, I think there's maybe a personnel issue there in terms of Wales, particularly in certain positions. And I think scrum half as well, maybe put into the spotlight there a little bit. But Hardy gets to try. And I think it's a very anxious two minutes there for England, really, to kind of see out. I mean, you know, only for Mario Otaji at the end, it was a superb kind of turnover at the end uh, to really secure because the crowd in Twickenham certainly got very nervous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, England like, hanging on for dear life. And I suppose if you look at it so far, you know, it hasn't been a great Six Nations for them in terms of the way that they're playing at the moment. And they have the, yeah, the big games coming up. Uh, Ireland and, and and France and uh, yeah, I I funny I I think that they could actually end up with just maybe two wins in the championship like you know really could 
Like, we know what England are going to bring to the table against Ireland. They're going to bring a very aggressive defensive line speed. Really going to press Gibson Park very hard at nine. They'll also have a very good aerial kicking game, which are back three, probably Hansen. Does Keenan come back in? Probably does. And then it's maybe a toss-up between Lowe and Conway. They're going to have to be on their game in terms of the aerial kicks. But again, from an attacking perspective, England have clearly struggled against um, Scotland. They've struggled here against Wales as well. I think the 13th position is a huge, huge conundrum for Eddie Jones. The, the, the plot was set. Manu Tulangi coming in at 13. That is who Eddie Jones wants in the 2023 Rugby World Cup, carrying the weight of a nation on his back, essentially. But unfortunately, another hamstring injury looks like another lengthy layoff. So England have an issue here. Now, Joe Marchant, I'm a very big fan of from Harlequins, but doesn't seem to be getting the trust or the respect of Eddie Jones because he only comes on for five minutes at the end. He favours Elliot Daly more so than Joe Marchant, but again, a direct ball runner. I think there's personnel issues. Stewart, he's a very good player, but again, defensively, defensive line reads, I question him. So, you know, I think that back three could be got at from England as well. Um, I think Ireland have an awful lot of scope for opportunity here against England. If they can, you know, counteract England physicality, I think scrum-wise, I think it's an intriguing battle. I think, like supporter for long, they've seen plenty in that video game tape against Wales to really give them hope. Yeah, I think it's intriguingly poised for Ireland against England and Twickenham, and as well as that England go to Paris in the last game against uh, France, Le Crunch, Jesus Christ, that's a, that's a mouth-watering game. And I mean, England could be going in there in complete underdog mode, France with everything to lose. I think that's intriguingly set up for final round game as well, to be perfectly fair. But look, I think Wales, they have to be buoyed by that performance. I know they've lost, but I think the manner of the last probably 30 minutes really should really bode well for Wales, particularly, um, particularly in their next game. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the Six Nations. A little bit to conclude here, Liam, particularly around Munster Rugby. And uh, I suppose the, the secret is out officially. Jason Jenkins, after one season, very little, if any, action from Munster Rugby whatsoever is moving from Munster Rugby to Leinster Rugby next season. Uh, what have your thoughts been, uh, Liam, in terms of Jenkins? To be honest, you know, to me, it's kind of signaling one of the worst overseas signings that the province have ever made, to be brutally honest. Yeah, yeah, I, I had to go along with that. I mean, we haven't even seen the guy pretty much this season. We saw him come off the bench for, for one one game. So uh, oh, it's it's hard, hard to know why. He, he Obviously, Munster were happy to sign him medically-wise, you know. But um, then you then you kind of wonder, well, why, why have Leinster, top side of Europe, happy to sign him for uh, next season. There must be something that they know that, that other people don't know, you know, and they're happy to sign off on that. Uh, I think, you know, um, Munster, I don't know, are we unlucky again or is it just disaster from the time of Christian Cullen on? You know, if we were to really look down through through the list of our foreign imports, they've all come a bit, a bit crocked, it has to be said. And let's hope that's not saying that it was always kind of an in the same league, but yeah, Jason Jenkins. I I, I reckon he's on decent money for for the season he was signed for us. I, I'm getting to the stage where I'd be surprised if he if he played any sort of contribution for us for even the knockout games at this stage. 
let's be brutally honest here, Liam. If he's not featuring on March 5th against the Dragons, I think you consider right there that Jenkins is gone. He's not going to be considered for selection, particularly when he gets to the Champions Cup against Exeter Chiefs. Leinster Rugby as well. I would think there's a conflict there. Because he's gone. To be perfectly honest. I think I think next week is the key week for Jason Jenkins. If he doesn't surface there, then he's done. Um, Munster had high hopes for him. Look, he's a big guy, big physical unit. But you consider the amount of time he's been out injured, given then the rest of the second row squad that the minutes they've had to now manage, given that it's been attritional. We've seen injuries now to Thomas O'Hearn, folks like that. Not saying this is due to Jenkins not being there, but it's again the player management on those positions. The expectation would have been that Jenkins would have been very prominent and featuring in these games around the Six Nations period where he'd provide the leadership, provide the physicality and the power. That has not happened. We've only seen him for 22 minutes against Cast before Christmas. That's that's the body of evidence. So I think from that perspective, <laughs> Leinster Rugby, obviously they've seen something that may be able to pinpoint what the fitness issues are. Because if they can get him fully 100%, he is the second role that Leinster are demanding, particularly in marquee games. But, you know, can't but feel underwhelmed by his contribution. The PR press release was very kind of nicey-nice, you know, making lifelong friends, all that. But the fact of the matter was, have you contributed on the pitch to Munster in any competition on the brutal fact and honesty here? No. So it's been a poor signing. I think from a Munster rugby organisational perspective, the recruitment has to be reviewed. We're now signing a guy in Fekitoa that, let's be brutally honest, has been injury prone as well. Are we going to get a similar outcome here than we have got with Jason Jenkins? I think that's, uh, yeah, it's just very interesting to see the recruitment policy here in Munster going forward because this has clearly not worked. And it wasn't as if Jenkins was coming in with a clean bill of health. There had been niggly injury worries and concerns there prior to him signing. So I think from a Munster perspective, they need to sit down and urgently review recruitment of overseas stars because it's clearly not working. So Schneiman, I think, is the exception. I mean, it's just unfortunate. <laughs> the crucial, like, that's just potluck. That is just, it, that wasn't in the script. But I think for guys who have history of injuries, niggly injuries, that should be getting flagged in medical reports. And you have to be brave enough to not commit to the player if that welfare issue is raised. But it doesn't seem as it has been in the Munster organization. So, again, it's unfortunate. Brutal fact of the matter is, I think, Jenkins is gone to Leinster. Let's see how he impacts. Again, I wish him well. But again, his contribution with Munster has been next to zero. And again, it should free up cap here for Munster to look around or even develop more homegrown talent in the second row positions, which we have been doing to our credit. Yeah, well, you know, Mark, actually, when I, or, or, as was signed, or sorry, was announced this week, believe it or not, was second row signings, hmm. Paddy Kelly and uh, Owen O'Connor brought oh, into true. their senior squad. So it's looking that, you know, those go, those guys, along with Finneen and Jean Klein uh, and Ahern, that that's five there, along obviously with Ty Byrne, who's covering everything. That's the six guys. That's that's our yep. that's our, our locks for next season. So and and that you know and all excellent excellent players, yeah, upcoming players there. 
in in terms of you know uh, other kind of signings, you know, uh, probably next to to Jesse Jenkins is on the appearance list is uh, Roman Salanoa. Mm. He he's on for you know it's happened to him as well. I'm struggling to apart from one game, I can't think he's played any other matches for us this season. So he's another guy to be thinking about as well for next season. I think there's serious concerns as well, being in terms of Salanoa's ankle uh, particularly uh, there's been kind of rumours here in terms of you know ending his season which is unfortunate but I don't want to be speculating here but uh, I think for the player it's been kind of a nightmare stint for him from Munster Rugby particularly after making the move down from Leinster who invested an awful lot of time and energy in the player he obviously has the raw potential here at Liam no doubt about it I've seen tapes of him when he's in Hawaii in high school particularly from his American football days he's explosive power physicality, everything. He ticks all the boxes. It's just been the conversion to rugby union and then Stuart investing off a lot of time on him. And then for him to come down to Munster, you remember the, the reaction from Leinster rugby when he came down to Munster? They were, they they were bitterly disappointed. They yeah. were bitterly disappointed to lose a player that they have nurtured and developed. It hasn't come to any fruition here. I would wonder next season if we do see some sort of press release that the player, you know, understandably could... Uh, you know, kind of terminate his contract by mutual consent because I think he's had a torrid time with the club and it's really kind of put up or shut up time. I think he would have harboured ambitions to represent USA in 2023 to Rugby World Cup. He's not getting his game at Munster either. So that that time is slipping away now. I'm expecting maybe some little movement in terms of that player in the next few months. I think maybe in the off-season, I think there might have to be a candid discussion between the player, the province, and maybe the US rugby uh, national team because if they were to get him fully fit, I think he would be a major asset to that side, but he's not getting game time. So um, I think for the player and his agents representatives, I think it's a it's a key kind of time right now to kind of see where his future is. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the other Damien Delende, maybe we'll be getting that news in the next week or two in terms of you know where he's, where his club commitments lie particularly going into 2023 as well. So, but yeah, just the Jenkins move, it kind of irked me a little bit in terms of zero contribution on the pitch, unfortunately, given all these injuries and, you know, Leinster, best of luck to him because, you know, Munster rugby haven't had any output from him. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> on that sorry note, unfortunately. Uh, Liam, we'll uh, leave it there. Uh, thanks very much for your inside contributions as always. Yeah, good talk, Mike. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, why not subscribe to the Hawkeye Psychic podcast on either Amazon, Spotify, YouTube or Twitter platforms. You can also follow me at Hawkeye Psychic on Facebook and Twitter for the latest sporting opinions, articles and reports.